the final edition of the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit podcast. In this series, I'll be joined by highly esteemed academics and industry leaders to discuss themes and topics pertaining to each of the crisis simulations that our 70 delegates are eagerly waiting to tackle. Joining me today will be Dr. Pitchman Yeo-Fantong and Dr. Ian Fry. Dr. Pitchman Yeo-Fantong is an Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow and Senior Lecturer at UNSW Canberra at ADFA. Pitchman's expertise and research focuses on Chinese foreign policy and political economy of sustainable development in the Asia-Pacific. In 2018, Pitchman was awarded the Australian Future Leader Prize by the Council for Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences. Pitchman is a Senior Lecturer Fellow at the Wong MNC Centre, sits on the Jubilee Australia's Research Committee and serves in the International Studies Association Environmental Studies section. Pitchman, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Ian Fry is an international environmental law and policy expert and a senior lecturer at the ANU. Ian is the ambassador for climate change and environment for the government of Tuvalu and has represented the Tuvalu government at a range of international forums, including the World Summit on Sustainable Development, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the Kyoto Protocol, just to name a few. Ian is also the Pacific Regional Representative to the UN for the International Council on Environmental Law, a member of the IUCN World Commission on Environmental Law, and a member of the Australian Association for Pacific Studies, just to name a few institutions that Ian is involved in. Ian, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right. So it's very interesting, I know, with both of you having very different um, backgrounds, uh, especially in relation to the Asia-Pacific as well. But I want to keep it nice and broad to begin with and gain two different perspectives on the concept of the role that Australia plays, especially as a middle power, um, but also being one of the more powerful nations um, in the region and its role that it plays to regional stability, both um, for politics as well. And, you know, I'd love to talk about more about, you know, its um, environmental concerns as well um, in the future. But Pitchman, do you want to start off with that question? Clearly, Australia plays a very important role at a time when we are seeing Canberra in particular being very keen about ramping up Australia's presence in the region, but also its geostrategic importance, right? So with the Pacific step up, but also with um, the stepping up of of development uh, activities in Southeast Asia as well, uh, we see Australia really trying to assume that middle power role. And so for that reason, Australia has the potential to play um, the role of an exemplar uh, when it comes to non-traditional security issues, especially like climate change um, and development uh, more broadly. So in that regard, it's it's an important time um, for Australia to demonstrate its commitment to the region, but also its commitment to these non-traditional security concerns, although to what extent um, that is currently happening, I suppose, is, is a slightly different question. For yourself, Ian, as well, what role does Australia play, um, especially on a more environmental front as well? Is it a similar role as uh, being an exemplar nation? I would tend to think not, uh, particularly on climate change. Australia is seen as a sort of a bit of a pariah in the Pacific uh, for its lack of action on climate change. Uh, and so th- this this is a serious worry that it's not committing to uh, significant climate change targets. Um, and so, you know, Pacific Island countries are quite concerned about how Australia is positioning itself. In the sort of broader political front, you know, the, the step-up program by Australia is putting a lot of money in into this P- Pacific Fusion Centre, which is a sort of basically an intelligence gathering centre. Uh, that has to be looking looked into into the context of uh, you know recent uh, military operations, uh, you know joint military operations by uh, 
the the quad group of countries, which includes Japan, Australia, Canada, uh, and the United States around Guam. So there were major naval exercises there. So you know this 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 is an issue, I guess, about you know what what role Australia is playing in in regional security. Mm. And you mentioned both um, about the Pacific step up as well, especially that was recently, in the, well not recently, a couple of years ago in the uh, Defence White Paper as well. A bit of criticism coming back from that, especially was um, this huge investment into into the Pacific, but it might be a bit withdrawing from um, Southeast Asia and with the Greater Asian region as well. Is that a common sentiment that you kind of um, believe within yourself, Pitchman? I mean, that's been a palpable concern, especially amongst um, Australia's Southeast Asian partners, that by focusing more on the Pacific, this will come at expense at Australia's longstanding engagement with Southeast Asia. But I think what we're seeing is that that's not entirely the case. And I think that DFAT is very well aware of the fact that Australia can't you know, rescind its its commitment to this region um, or sub-region, depending on, on how you look at it. Um, and so for that reason, Australia now really needs to look at it in a more holistic way. I mean, we use the term Indo-Pacific a lot, or we hear it used a lot, right, in, in Australian media, but also in, in policy circles. And what that actually means um, and what it means for Australia's engagement uh, with the Indo-Pacific, I think, is something that still has not been clearly defined. And so really the concerns that have been raised about whether or not the Pacific step up is taking attention away from other priority areas in Australian foreign and defence policy, um, I think speaks to a much uh, more underlying underlying concern about the clarity that surrounds Australia's engagement with with um, other countries in the region mm-hmm. and what that is supposed to look like, you know, beyond just a year or two, but actually from a much like a 10 year perspective, for example. Ian, how about yourself? Well, I can't really say much about the Asian region or Southeast Asia, but I guess you know Australia's engagement in the Pacific is certainly in reaction to China's engagement in the region, and the growing sort of expansion of China through its Belt and Road Initiative, and so you know Australia is certainly reacting to that, and so is the United States, I guess, to sort of uh, you know stronger engagement by China in the Pacific region. And especially with this like engagement, and like you said, quite eloquently, with like essentially with this rise of China, um, which again we'll talk about more about because I know you have a big background in um, investment and stuff like and all that. Uh, for yourself, Ian, with this rampant uh, increase in investment, especially in the Pacific region, do you feel as though it's exclusively on the premise of this reaction reaction to um, increased Chinese investment? And do you think they actually are listening to what the Pacific needs and what the Pacific countries need from Australia? Well, I, I don't think there was a lot of consultation before Australia launched it, it, its step-up program in the region. So it, it's sort of devising its own own sort of program of what it should do. In fact, I, I met with uh, Prime Minister Morrison at the Pacific Island Forum in 2019 uh, when I was advising the Prime Minister of Tuvalu and he he seemed to be not aware of the sort of major concerns of the Pacific, particularly around climate change. And so, this seems to be the whole step up program seems to be, uh, you know, a response to Australia's interests rather than uh, a greater understanding of Pacific regional interests. Yeah, no, I can only echo what Ian has already very lucidly pointed out, um, which is 
that's the problem. If we, if Australia views the Pacific step up as simply a response to China's rise, then that's not going to really help things because it means that it's more about Australia's strategic interests than it is about the needs of, of people in the Pacific themselves. And this is a problem that's, or an issue that's applicable not just to the Pacific, but equally when it comes to Australia's engagement with Southeast Asia, where Chinese economic presence at least is something that is inevitable at this stage. Um, wherever you go in the region, China's there. And when it comes to these countries, they have very little choice but to behave pragmatically. So they can't be forced to choose between Australia, the US or China for that fact. Um, so it is, I, I agree. I mean, this is a problem that we find in development more broadly as well, which is where you know, agendas are being dictated not so much by the grassroots or by the the locals themselves, but more so by the donor countries. Um, in this case, Australia. And especially for yourself, you do have a lot of um, research in Chinese foreign policy um, and also investment. Which is one of the questions I wanted to ask was, um, especially considering its rapid investment in not only the Asia Pacific region but also you can see it in um, Africa with its um, close coordination with the African Union as well. With uh, these sorts of investments, does the rising role of security almost undergird Beijing's economic statecraft and commercial interests within these regions as well? I think it's undeniable that security interests will always undergird um, any foreign policy um, aspect. So yes, security does inform Beijing's economic statecraft in that regard, but Beijing's no different from any other you know, government in that sense. Um, and what, what we have been seeing, though, is that perhaps Beijing, or more specifically Chinese companies, and in this case Chinese state-owned companies, aren't perhaps factoring in the security dimensions as much as they ought to be when they're determining which investment projects to greenlight um, in countries where the social situation might not be the most stable. So it's actually in a in kind of like an interesting way. Um, it's the case that Chinese companies actually now are becoming more aware that they actually have to factor in security interests, especially non-traditional security concerns, um, in a way that's much more explicit in order to offset the risks and the vulnerabilities that arise from Chinese large-scale Chinese investment projects in developing countries where, again, the social or political situation might not be so stable and where, as a result, they might face sizable risks um, if their projects were to encounter massive local opposition, for example. And we've seen this happen in Southeast Asia. Um, and I really do think that it's a matter of time before uh, we see more of this happen in the coming mm -hmm months if not years yeah and with that sort of um contest almost of um the receiving of these investments for yourself in is that a sort of similar sort of uh rhetoric for the pacific nations especially considering if these donations are coming from china which are one of the biggest emitters of carbon dioxide etc cetera, etc cetera, in the world well the first thing i guess is what what's china's interest in the region and i think uh you know consistent with its sort of Belt and Road Initiative throughout the world, it's looking at accessible resources. For the Pacific, this is primarily fisheries and to a lesser extent, tropical timbers. So it's trying to, you know, invest in the region to, to extract those resources at a higher level. And it, and it is using security measures to protect those. So there are, you know, patrol boats that are uh, protecting Chinese fishing boats and things like that. So that, I think, is its primary interest, though there are other uh, interests in, in telecommunications in the region as well. But I, 
I suspect that, you know, its primary interest is access to those available resources. And certainly fisheries is a major uh, resource. It's the major source of income for Pacific Island countries. Uh, And so, you know, protecting that resource, particularly under the threat of climate change, where recent reports suggest that fishing resources will decline within the Pacific region and migrate away further to the east and therefore there needs to be greater uh, you know, concern about the loss of fishing resources and how Pacific Island countries can respond to that. If I can, sorry, just jump in there. Um, I absolutely, again, agree with what Ian has already said. At the same time, I also think that we have to consider the diversity that exists when we talk about Chinese actors and when we talk about Chinese corporate actors, um, because, of course, there are varying interests that come with you know, uh, particular companies. And what I think we've been seeing when it comes to Chinese companies in particular is that their interests can be quite commercially driven. Um, So in that regard, it's not to overstate how security concerns underpin um, Beijing's economic statecraft, but it's also to acknowledge that these Chinese actors also exercise a degree of autonomy when it comes to making decisions as well at the local level, especially. Um, But that you know, they might be in it purely for economic or commercial interests, which is not to say that that makes the situation that much better. But it does mean that when we think about engagement um, or responses um, to these projects, that we have to consider, you know, where they're coming from and what their motivations might be. For yourself especially, um, you wrote an article a couple of years ago um, talking about China's reputation um, as an investor. Can you talk about a couple of some of your findings that you found when you were writing that paper as well? Sure. I I was quite optimistic when I was writing that paper, I'll be honest with you. And the COVID situation and the changes in the geopolitical landscape, I think, has affected or tempered some of that early optimism. But the kind of the key message I was trying to get through is, again, that we can't assume that China acts as a monolith. Um, we have to appreciate the fact that there are a diversity of, of actors when we talk about China that are involved in decision making at different scales or different levels. Um, and the point that I was trying to make is that it's not all doom and gloom. What we often hear in the media, especially, is that you know the Chinese are coming, they're investing in all of these um, environmentally and socially unsustainable and devastating projects with devastating consequences. And whilst, you know, in a number of cases that is true, and we have seen how, you know, shoddily um, approved projects um, in countries where lax governance is the norm, has really impacted adversely the livelihoods of people, but also the natural environment. There are also examples or instances where these Chinese enterprises, both state-owned and private, have also been trying to learn better rules of engagement and have been trying to wrap their heads around what social, environmental and corporate responsibility means. So it's not like they're existing in this vacuum um, where there is no change. But I suppose the message I was trying to put through is that there are opportunities for engagement as a result. And if we are, as much as we should try to understand what they do wrong, we should also try and identify examples where they do things right so that we can engage them on that basis as well. So in essence, considering the fact that the last couple of decades been fully integrated into the Western markets as well, like you said, it's almost you kind know, of trying to figure out what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, et cetera, et cetera, in these markets with like, you know, the United States, with Australia, et cetera, et cetera. Is that the sort of common rhetoric that you come and come across? Or? Absolutely. I mean, when I speak to Chinese um, 
in informants, uh, whether they be company representatives or, or policymakers or civil society representatives for that fact. The point that they do make is that China is generally speaking, quite new to all of this. And so when it comes to these international standards, you know, in China itself, domestically speaking, uh, laws don't always get enforced. And what it means to engage in best practice when it comes to large development projects is also not always clear. So in that regard, it is a very kind of steep learning curve that they are having to um to, to overcome. Um, it's not an excuse, uh, but it is one of the reasons that gets given for why they're kind of still struggling um, in that regard. Um, and so, yes, I do think we have to bear that in mind because these these rules, these standards are, are things that get fashioned by humans um, and also by a particular set of states. Um, and so if we want, you know, deeper Chinese engagement, whether it be by Beijing or by Chinese companies, then it means that they really need to be part of the dialogue. Mm. And especially with Australia and um, the United States and other actors as well who have been in and around and pretty much formulated these rules of engagement, essentially. For them, it's very much they understand all the ins and outs and all the intricacies. So it seems as though they're a little bit less forgiving to newcomers into the into the markets. Yeah. Well, I think um, Ian probably will have something to weigh in on this most likely as well. I mean, it's not just even just about China, even if China is a major investor in the Pacific and Southeast Asia and Africa and so forth. But it's also actually getting host countries, right? So countries in the Pacific, countries in Southeast Asia to be equally involved in fashioning these rules and these standards. Because what the what Chinese companies often like to say, and what Beijing also likes to say, is that we go by the host country's rules and laws um, and regulations. So if these laws and regulations aren't being enforced by the host country, there's very little that we can do as a result, you know, sovereignty, non-interference and so forth. So if we want that to not become a justification um, for what we're currently seeing that, you know, is being wrong with these large development projects or development financing, then we have to ensure that these host countries are equally part of, of that dialogue. And in what role do the Pacific nations for yourself, what do they need to do to further engage in this change? Well, from the climate change front, I guess uh, certainly China is is uh, working hard to develop an emissions trading scheme. So I, I'm engaged in negotiations under the Paris Agreement on the, the emissions trading scheme under Article 6 of the agreement. And so China is very actively involved in those negotiations. Uh, we're part of a sort of multi, well, a UN-based negotiation process. But they've been working hard to develop their own emissions trading scheme. They're, they've piloted a number of schemes in various, <coughs> various provinces within China. And you know, trying to get to grips with that, and as as Pishamon said, you know, it's uh, China's not just one single entity. There are a lot of enterprises there trying to come to grips with uh, how how to deal with this sort of trading mechanism. In 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 the re in the Pacific region itself, you know, the the issue around fisheries is an issue that certainly China have recently announced a moratorium on squid fishing in the region because they realised that they they were being overfished and and. And that's that's to to be commended for them to do that, um, but there are also you know concerns about illegal unreported fishing. So there has been a number of instances of Chinese flagged vessels operating, particularly around uh, the Eastern Pacific region, um, with their transponders turned off, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, so there, there are still issues around uh, <coughs> that area, around the Galapagos area. So Ecuador government has uh, expressed grave concern about fishing vessel, uh, Chinese fishing vessels working in that region. And so has uh, Chile as well about Chinese fishing vessels. So there, there is a sort of a mixed response, I guess, by China. And I, I guess it, it highlights the point that, it, you know, th- uh, that, you know, China is a, as a single entity still needs to work out how how to control its the enterprises that it's responsible for. Mm. And I guess it goes back to that first question that um I asked at the beginning of Australia's role in in the region, and like you were starting to allude to as well, do we have the sort of power almost to kind of kind of realign almost and make these suggestions to China of being like well. These are what your organisations, what the companies are doing. Um, this is what you need to do to fix it. Do we have that sort of power to to for them to cooperate like that? That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> can, maybe I can jump in on that. I mean, the, the, the trouble is, is that at the moment, you know, Australia is closely aligning with the United States as far as sort of military activity is concerned, and that, and that obviously doesn't go down well with China. Uh, so you know, Australia doesn't have a lot of power to negotiate with China if it continues to sort of align with the United States in in this sort of you know growing tensions in the South China Sea. Uh, and so you know, the, I, I think there are limited opportunities while Australia doesn't sort of position itself separately from the you know the military interests of the United States. I think, yes, it's because of Australia's current alignment with US foreign policy that makes it perhaps less likely for Canberra to be able to exert influence over Chinese policy considerations and policy making. That's not to say that there shouldn't be an attempt to continue engaging. I think the concern that that one has when one looks at the current bilateral state of the bilateral relationship between Australia and China is that it seems like because things are so bad, there's actually no room for engagement anymore. And that's not true. Um, again, if we go beyond the state level, if we look at what's happening you know, in, in the NGO, CSO, civil society space, if we look at in the business space, those interactions are still happening and those lines of communication are still open. So I think we also need to kind of take a step back and look beyond the state-to-state relationship um, and to also consider how cooperation and influence could potentially happen at you know, in these other spheres at these other levels as well. Um, and I think, you know, with Australia participating in like the Blue Dot Network or the Trilateral Partnership for Investment and so forth with the US and Japan, I mean, these are good initiatives insofar as they are pushing forward the notion that quality infrastructure is important and that when we finance, we need to finance for quality. Um, but that can't be something that's just targeting Beijing. Um, or China. It needs to be a, a global movement, right? Um, and at the end of the day, it remains the case that, you know, even with quality infrastructure, what does that even mean? Um, it's going to look different for different countries, um, but also what kind of infrastructure are we talking about? And certainly Australia has also been on the receiving end of criticisms when it comes to some of its investment projects, or not Australia, but Australian companies' investment projects, um, especially in the resource sector in the Pacific, right? Um, so in that regard, I I think we need Australia needs to be self-reflexive 
um, when it comes to these things. And when it comes to standard setting, if Australia wants to be the exemplar, it can't just be seen as pointing its finger um, at China. It also needs to be looking at what it's doing and whether that serves as a solid standard um, for other countries as well. Yeah, almost like looking inward as to what we're doing before we, yeah, like you said, start pointing the finger and saying, well, this is a standard that we want to set uh, for the region to um, maintain this sort of regional stability. I think I'm going to use this as a quite an interesting segue to kind of start talking more about uh, climate change, climate security as well, um, especially um, with the recent IPWC reports uh, that came out earlier this week. Um, for yourself, Ian, as well, going back to that idea of um, Australia setting a standard and all that, with Scott Morrison as well, he did say that uh, he felt as though it was unfair on Australia to be criticised, especially considering um, we have big emitters around the world, notably China. But um, we look at our own statistics and they're quite poor to say the least. Do you think Australia's? Do you think that's a reasonable assumption for Mr. Morrison to say, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, Australia's amongst the top per capita emissions in the world. So that it has to be looked at in that context. And uh, clearly that's a serious problem. And at, at the Pacific Forum leaders meeting um, in 2019, you know, uh, there was a strong call from Pacific leaders to call for a ban of export of coal because this is clearly seen as a sort of a major driver of, of greenhouse gases, so the use of coal and coal-fired power stations. So until Australia, you know, takes on that initiative and and really, you know, steps up to the plate and and basically stops, you know, pr- selling fossil fuels globally, uh, it's not going to be looked at very favourably amongst Pacific Island leaders, and that that's certainly been coming out in a number of declarations that have come out of the Pacific on that issue. So it, it's it's not looking good at the moment. I mean, just uh, you know. Earlier this week, Pacific Island Forum leaders were meeting uh, online, and uh, you know, just you know, Scott Morrison was eating during that meeting, and 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 just that is seen as uh, offensive to to leaders. You know, in the Pacific, you know, leaders uh, respect each other, and to eat in front of each other is seen as quite. Disrespectful. So the, the Australia has a lot to learn about its relations with the Pacific mm, and how it engages with them as well. I could imagine. What are you so definitely? Yeah, no, I think Ian basically covered all of the the points that I would want to make as as well. Um, and I agree that when it comes to diplomacy, it's it's not just what happens in the room, right? It also is about the symbolism, the signalling that happens oftentimes in more informal spaces, um, and and opportunities. So in that regard, Australia really does need to step up its game. Um, and it's not just about throwing more money. Um, it's actually about meaningful quality engagement, however that might be defined. And I find that, you know, it's quite, again, quite ironic that the Morrison government should come out with those statements about how it's unfair to be targeting Australia when there's no denying it, that Australia really is um, lagging behind when it comes to its its climate commitments. Um, and in that regard, to and I don't really want this to become a, a comparison or a race to the bottom because it's not a competition as to who can get away with, you know, committing less to to mitigating or adapting to climate change. 
But you know, if you if you look at what China's been doing in terms of um, South South technology transfers, or when it comes to even just acknowledgement that climate change is a real problem, um, and China, of course, is formally acknowledge the existence of um, climate change refugees. So in that regard, domestic Chinese policy is possibly more far along when it comes to acknowledging the kind of the existential threat that climate change poses to Australia. Whereas I think when Australia defines existential threats, it's still very much things in military terms, um, whether it be, you know, China or the South China Sea dispute or, or something else, right? And just very quickly, but another point also is that Australia has been welcoming um, financing, right, from overseas, not just China, but mo most recently South Korea to build new um, coal-fired power plants in the Barossa Valley, for example. So these are things that should ideally not be happening. Um, and, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think these both come across very common themes, which I really want to talk about soon as well. I really want to talk about as well um, with China as well being a future leader in renewable energy as well. At the moment, it seems as though they are quite they're leading the charge in regards to wind and solar energy, uh, as well as domestic and outbound investment in renewable energies as well. Really being a global and regional leader as well. But there's a whole bunch of reasons you could argue for this as well. You have political incentives. Um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So, question for you especially is: Does China have political incentive, the economic capability needed to be a global leader in renewable energies? I think in China, the development of the renewable energy industry has mainly been due to the um, the opportunities, the commercial opportunities that it affords. So, for for Chinese companies, it's you know it's a great um, sector that allows for a lot of growth and a lot of growth into the future as well. Um, but it also offers um, Chinese companies that opportunity to innovate, right, and to also learn from other companies in other parts of the world what they're doing. So in that regard, I think they've been very um, clever in how they've been able to carve for themselves a, a big share of a very big global market in that regard. And it's quite in that regard, it's quite surprising how other countries with perhaps similar capabilities or or yeah, the capacity to to the potential to do this as well have not really been able to in the same degree that the Chinese have. Um, at the same time, I do want to quickly note that, like with everything else, there are two sides of the story, and it can be a double-edged sword. So even though China has been um, leading when it comes to wind and solar technologies, um, when it comes to hydropower, for example, uh, hydropower projects in different parts of the world, especially Southeast Asia um, and Africa, have been very con controversial. And it has resulted in plenty of local resistance to these projects. Um, at the same time, even with solar farms, um, there are now emerging reports about how the big solar farms are displacing communities um, and how they might also have unanticipated environmental impacts. So for that reason, I think even if it is a positive story overall, we still have to be mindful that there may be unexpected um, negative consequences that really means that this sector also has to be carefully monitored and regulated. Mm. It's like almost going from like one extreme to the other at yeah. the same time. Ian, how about yourself? What are your thoughts on the idea of China being this huge investor in renewable energy? Yeah, well, I, I agree entirely with Pishamon on this one. Is it, I mean, it's in their own national interest because of the high degree of air pollution uh, you know that there's a, there's enormous health cost 
to to burning fossil fuels, and so that they obviously see that in their own national interest. But I, I seriously think that they are trying to present themselves as a world leader in in addressing climate change, and and I think that they are making steps. But but as has been said, there are consequences to that. Certainly, the hydropower issues. Uh, the countries on the Mekong River, uh, downstream of the Mekong River, are certainly concerned about the the growth of hydropower dams in China and what effects that will have to access to to water downstream. And I guess I want to talk about as well, because um, especially from uh, from you, especially Ian, with your perspectives and work, uh, extensive work with the Somali government as well in the Pacific. What gen- what specific sort of risks and um, concerns are they growing as a result of these climate emergencies and these climate issues, and how do they relate to uh, the security of their nations as well? Well, the, you know, the recent IPCC report clearly states, you know, that there are very serious concerns for the survival of some Pacific Island countries, particularly the coral atoll nations. Uh, of Marshall Islands, Kiribati and Tuvalu, plus, you know, coral atoll islands within a lot of other Pacific Island countries. So sea level rise is is a major concern, but perhaps the biggest concern and immediate concern is more severe, uh, you know, severe weather events, cyclonic activity, which have increased in frequency as a consequence of climate change, and that and that's been shown. And this this is the real threat to the survival of many communities throughout the Pacific is the impacts of climate change. In 2016, you know, Tuvalu suffered a major cyclone from Cyclone Pam, which was the same one that hit Vanuatu. Uh, And it basically sent waves right across three of the islands of Tuvalu. And so that contaminated crops, fresh water, destroyed infrastructure. Um, and so these are, you know, increasing problems for the region, uh, and 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 clearly, you know, the Pacific is very worried about these these impacts. Um, whether or not this will mean, you know, that countries will disappear, really depends on how much money is put into, you know, protecting those countries, and that that's the crucial issue: is is the international community willing to step up and say, we we will provide you with the resources to make sure that you stay where you are and i guess like you're mentioning with the um with the with uh the effects it's going to have on the sustainability of life as well especially in the pacific region agriculture is such a such a, a big aspect of its of its um of its economies and of its trade are you are you concerned about the effects that climate change is going to have on this specific sector as well of agriculture certainly and and it appears as though uh, uh the, this recent report suggests that there's going to be more severe droughts. Uh, so availability of fresh water for agriculture is going to be a problem. But at the same time, there's going to be, you know, instances of higher, uh, you know, storm rain as well, you know, in some places. So that's more likely to be, you know, flooding in some regions as well, which will also affect agriculture. So that's a serious concern. Of course, you know, for many Pacific Island countries, uh, access to fisheries is is going to be the serious issue, and ocean acidification. Uh, you know the increased acid levels in the ocean are affecting uh, tuna stocks, uh, as well as uh, other marine organisms like coral reefs, because they get weakened by by uh, the acidification. 
So that's th- these are further threats to the sort of livelihoods of Pacific Island countries. And uh, the effects of fisheries has been a common sentiment that you've been expressing over the last um, 30 minutes as well. Can you elaborate a bit more as to what you, about your grave concerns that you have, uh, especially in regards to the fisheries? Yes, well, the studies suggest that the, the, the western part of the Pacific Ocean is warming up. Uh, and, and what we're seeing is that we're getting these sort of, uh, sort of ocean heat waves and when you get those, you get less nutrients being cycled through the system, and that means that uh, there's less food for the fish, and so they migrate away from those heated up ocean areas. So uh, the science suggests that the fisheries will be migrating away from those warmer ocean areas, and you know that means that uh, particularly the Western Pacific era, uh, countries, uh, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, are going to be suffering significantly from a loss of fisheries and income as a consequence of that. So basically what we're gathering is, and it's been extensively researched over the last however many years, that the Pacific is in grave danger, especially um, as a result of climate change and climate security, especially with your role um, as well with the UN. It's not directly related to my next question, but I guess with your insights as well, and I'd love to get your opinions on this as well, but the part that the UN Security Council plays in addressing this climate security issue, because it just seems as though it's being it's commonly expressed of how concerning the climate uh, change is to the national security and even just the general human security of um, everyone, especially within the Pacific Islands. So, do you want to go first on this one? Yeah, so the, the Pacific have been uh, continuously called calling for a special rapporteur through the uh, UN Security Council to report on, on, on the linkages between climate change and security. Uh, the Boyd Declaration that came out of Pacific Leaders Forum in 2018 highlighted this close link between security and climate change issues. So this is, you know, issues around a loss of livelihood perhaps, you know, displacement of people from their countries, which are uh, certainly, you know, going to cause issues uh, with security. And in fact, the UN Secretary General came to the Pacific in 2019 and, and uh, you know, was quite alarmed by, by the security implications of climate change in the region and, and set up a small fund to help some of the coral atoll nations, a sort of climate security fund to sort of help deal with those issues. So there is a strong linkage between sort of security and climate change issues and, and the Security Council should be looking at this. There is some pushback from this. Uh, some countries feel that the Security Council is not a representative body of all countries and therefore climate change issues should be dealt with just within the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. But, uh, you know, I tend to think this is at such a level of concern that the Security Council should be taking on this issue in in a far greater way. Yeah, no, here, here. I think it's it's quite astounding again how, despite all that we know um, about climate change, but also given the very clear security implications that climate change has, not just for Pacific Island countries, but equally for Australia and for the region more broadly, that those linkages still need to be tested and and need to be demonstrated um, more so than they already have. And I think if you look at Australia's own 
um, approach to talking about climate change in policy, but also in foreign policy and specifically its engagement with the Pacific, much of it is is still very weakly securitized, meaning that Australia still hasn't really identified climate change as a major security concern for the region um, as it ought to have. Um, so in that regard, I I think the I mean the question there is what can be done um, in order to incentivize perhaps countries like Australia who have been on the fence for such a long time. Well, in perhaps in certain cases, not even on the fence, but uh, how you know they can be incentivized to actually take action on these issues. Um, and Pacific Island countries have, have really made a very persuasive case, right, that their existence is at risk, that you know, they would appreciate um, assistance from other countries, especially Australia, you know, through initiatives like the Pacific Step Up to actually do something about this. Um, and yet it would appear that a lot of those, um, those, those statements are, are still falling on, on deaf ears uh, in, in policy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to hear what Ian has to say in that regard. Like, why is it so difficult, um, for people in Canberra to appreciate how urgent, how exigent these issues are to Pacific Island countries? Why are we still talking about this now when the point has been made repeatedly over the past of many, over the past many years? Well, to answer that, I, I mean, the, the problem is, is that the current government has some extreme right-wing views that, that you know, are on the, on the verge of denying climate change. It, you know, the Deputy Prime Minister or the former Deputy Prime Minister said, look, you know, if Pacific Island countries uh, are displaced, they can come and pick our fruit. You know, that, that sort of insensitive, uh, you know, Comment is obviously, you know, ignorant of the of the broader sort of uh, security issues of the region. So the, there is a sort of a, you know, a, a serious issue within the current government to understand this. And then the fact that they've appointed, you know, a minister responsible for Pacific Island affairs who is from the far right of the party suggests that they're, they're not very sympathetic to the concerns of the Pacific. And I guess on that as well, in other nations around the world, like for example, the United States, this issue on climate change and climate security is such a political issue as well. Why is that the case here in Australia? Why is it held in such regard, not, not even regard in that sense of being held in such a political sort of perspective? Well, maybe, I mean, uh, What's happening is, you know, we're seeing a lot of people being displaced as a consequence of climate change, particularly in South Asia, you know, uh, in Bangladesh, Afghanistan, Pakistan. We're seeing a lot of people being displaced as a consequence of climate change, not just internal, you know, fighting. And people are migrating. Uh, and this is causing, you know, obvious, you know, tensions within this region, in other parts of Africa, there are certainly tensions as a result of climate change migration. And, and people are sort of moving towards this region. And therefore, you know, there, there clearly needs to be a recognition of this fact. But of course, migration is a, you know, is a sort of no-go area discussion in Australia. So that, that's where we have this problem. I think I'll go ahead and start wrapping up soon as well. So I've got two questions which are going to encapsulate all we've kind of talked about today so far. One from 
climate one from more political perspective as well. First one is how should we balance our approach to national security interests whilst also serving the best interests of the Pacific as well? Well, you know, they they just have to be recognised as, you know, coming together. Uh, We can't separate those concepts out. The security issues are real uh, and climate change are making them more concerning. And and we have to decouple our our you know interests of you know within the United States to have a more responsible middle income approach to dealing with these security issues, uh, and that and that's the only way you know Australia can play a significant role. Otherwise, it'll be a minor party in in this process. Yeah. Look, I think. It's a difficult question, and this is in part, to be fair, this is why governments struggle, right, to to develop coherent policies um, that can address all of these contending priorities. Um, that being said, I think part of it is to is our mindset and how we view these issues. If we think in terms of it being about balancing, then immediately we're assuming that these problems are on the opposite side, right? Whereas if we start to appreciate that environmental climate, environmental insecurity, climate change, and so forth, all part of the broader insecurity dilemma that we face um, as a common global community, um, then it's not about balancing. It's actually just about developing the, co- the coherent policies to address these issues. And I mean, I'm, I'm going to sound like a, um, a, like a complete diehard fan of uh, the concept of sustainable development. But if we go back to the Brundtland's Commission, you know, our common future report, the point I would venture to say isn't so much about balancing economic and environmental interests or so forth. It's what they emphasized was balancing the needs of the present with the needs of, of future generations, right? And I think really that is where we should be focusing our attention to, um, because it really, at the end of the day, all of these problems come together, um, but it's about the timing as to when they manifest and when they are going to get much more severe. Um, and so for that reason, that's the challenge that we as a global community ha- have to think about. And for that reason, it's not useful to kind of, you know, descend into these tribalistic um, struggles for power, influence, or, or whatnot, right? Because if, if climate change is a threat to the Pacific, it's a threat to Australia, it's the threat, it's a threat to, to the rest of the Indo-Pacific region. Wonderful. I think that's some really lovely closing remarks for yourself there. So I think we might wrap it up there. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, it has been wonderful to gain all your incredible insights on such an important issue to both Australia and to our regional partners as well. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's all we have time for here today. Thank you for listening to the ACSS podcast. This episode wraps up the series. To the delegates, the challenges have been set for you to tackle in the summit. We eagerly wait to see how you rise to these challenges. Bye for now.